Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Mitun Sacchetti, CEO of Carrot Lane. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from New York City. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I feel like we're in the thick of the summer. It's nice and hot. There's not that much going on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of hot, uh, we have a gentleman, I'm sure it's much hotter over there. <laughs> We have a, a gentleman waiting in the wings, so to speak. Yes, I know. I always feel bad when I talk about being hot in LA. I never really think about the rest of the country or in fact, the rest of the world where, of course, humidity plays a much greater role than it does here in LA. Without beating too much further around the bush, I'll introduce our guest, Mitun Sachetti. He is CEO of Carrot Lane, which has often been described as India's version of Blue Nile. He's calling in from Chennai, which is on the southeastern coast of India. I believe, perhaps you can correct me. Is it is it the Andaman Sea or? It's the Bay of Bengal. The Bay of Bengal. Okay. And how how hot is it over there? It's about thirty degrees Celsius, but it's raining a lot, so it's nice to be here right now because it. Uh, you know, we have only three sort of seasons. It's either hot or it's hotter or it's hottest. There's nothing <laughs> other than that. <laughs> Which of the three is this? Is this is sort of this? This is sort of hotter. Okay. Hotter. You're in the middle. We're in the middle. Right. And Mitun is our first guest, I believe, from India that we've had. And while we're in the middle of the day, it's actually night for him. So we appreciate you doing this. Yeah, it's a, like a full day's difference, a 12 hour, 12 or maybe even a 12 and a half hour time difference. So thank you, Mitun, for staying up i feel like whenever i do speak to someone from india it's always them staying up late which is very kind actually because i'm not i don't function quite as well at 10 p.m as 10 a.m so no problem at all the good part is culturally we tend to stay up late so i think it works better that way that we're speaking late India time rather than 6 a.m. India time. And you'd be happy to do a 6 a.m. call from there. But I can tell you that most people in India would struggle to do that. <laughs> okay, well, good. Then this works out perfectly. Well, so before we get into Carrot Lane and how you founded it and sort of what it is today, we always start off with a very basic question, which is how did you get into the industry? Uh, you know, it's a generational um, sort of a introduction by generations to the industry. So mom and dad, are into this. They run a mom and pop store. That's the business they had. Grand uncles, etc., were also in the business. So had a lot of visibility into this business uh, from a very young age. And uh, very different part of the business because they're an extreme high end, but loved the manufacturing side of the business they were in. So always enjoyed that. And were they in? Where did you grow up? What city? I grew up in Bombay. And are they still? Are they still in it? Are they still doing high yes. end? Yes. Yes. Still doing high end. Still successful. Still embarrass me all the time. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> As parents on. do. <laughs> yes. My mom and dad work longer hours than me even today, and that embarrasses me. And you worked in the uh, United States, I guess, for a while. And you said that was where you first got the idea for Carrot Lane when you saw Blue Nile and the power of it. Yeah, actually, uh, it was more um, when I was uh, a student at GIA and uh, school would get over about 2.30, I think, approximately. And there was a lot of free time. And um, I had a girlfriend back in India and I wanted to earn some pocket money to be able to make those calls. So what I would do is go down. 
down to LA and I knew some people, some of the dealers over there. And they would work Monday to Friday. And Saturday and Sunday is when bulk of the business happened in San Diego. So I would pick up inventory from them on Fridays, put it up in the stores on Saturday, Sunday, and try and make a brokerage uh, on whatever got sold on the weekend. So largely diamonds, trying to sell that and make some money out of that. That's what I was doing back when I was in GIA. What years were you? What years were you in San Diego then? Uh, 99. Okay, so this is just as Blue Nile, because both of you probably know this off the top of your head. What year was Blue Nile founded? Yes, just a couple of years before that. Yeah. And I think this was their really popular phase. 98, 99, 2000 were their really, their big phase of growth, etc. happening. Raised a lot of money, spent a lot of money on advertising. All of that was happening. It was the conversation with every jewelry store that I would go to that uh, who they had to compete with. And I guess, and they were really upset about it, I guess. Yes, uh, of course. I mean, they were taking the cream out of the business for them. So it feels like, I mean, but that was still so when you think about it, it, you know, via 2020, it's web 1.0, the very, very first generation of any of these businesses online. It really was. It really was. And if you think about uh, where they were in um, at that stage, I think it was amazing the kind of impact they had in those early years. And they sort of figured out the most standardized part of the jewelry business and and still around, which is even more remarkable because I think about all yes. the businesses that started up in those years and clearly collapsed a, a real model business. And then when did you head back? Did you head back to India immediately after graduating from GIA? I did. I went right away in 99 end. I went back to India, November, December. That's when I got back, landed in Mumbai, tried to work in the parent store and realized that the best thing for me was to open a new store somewhere else. So I moved to Chennai and opened a store over there with the support, obviously, of my family. And why Chennai? Third largest jewelry market in the world. They also had um, something very similar to California other than the weather. They had nothing about the weather, but they had a very large coastline where one could surf and also two golf courses. But the weather allows for neither of the two. So. <laughs> the irony, the irony. Yeah, I, I've never yes. thought of uh, the Chennai coastline as a place of surfing, but of course, I'm sure there's great waves whether or not people want to be outside. Now it is actually. Now it is. Um, almost 50,000 people when the surf festival happens show up. Well, so tell us about, you know, the idea for Carrot Lane, how that formed and a little bit about your launch, which I guess was right before the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008. Is that right? Yes, yes. That timing, of course, was unfortunate and planned. That's just how it happened. We got ready to launch. And to be honest, I didn't even know anything about Lehman Brothers. And I could just, I was like, why are these brothers crashing my party? <laughs> that was just my only thought. <laughs> you know? But just to go a year or two before that, you know, the way jewelry businesses were traditionally run in India, and maybe I would say even in America, there's a lot of jewelry in a store but not enough number of consumers walking through the doors every single day. Walk-in was always a problem over there. So the businesses were about more inventory, less walk-ins, but you made a lot of money because if you had good margins, you were fine with the whole business model as it is. India is a little different. Most places don't have the same kind of margin because the per capita income is also obviously lower. So you wanted bigger throughput. You want more people coming through your doors. And I felt that uh, whatever I was doing with my family business while we make a lot of money, it wasn't going to grow. We're not going to impact a million people. That's not going to happen. If one has to do that, one has to turn the model on its head. And there was a lot to learn from Blue Nile in that. What was interesting to learn from Blue Nile was that find the easiest place to enter the business from, which again was um, loose diamonds or solitaires where one could get in and try and figure that out. 
2008 was like 1.0 web for India. We didn't have an Amazon. Uh, so we started with um, diamonds and engagement rings around that. But we knew that the ultimate frontier for us was going to be jewelry because that's what most people end up buying. At least in India, a lot more than in US. And also, if you want people to buy multiple times, then it has to be jewelry because uh, nobody gets married more than a couple of times, hopefully, right? On an average. And in India, that's like the divorce rates are like 3%. It just is a very, very small number. So if it had to be a relationship business, which is what jewelry businesses are, and not a transaction business, we had to do a lot more than just selling loose diamonds or engagement rings. So how long did it take you to put the whole thing together, right? Because you didn't have an online background, correct? I did not. And so I worked with a customer of mine from my jewelry business and he had taken his company, rather he was a part of a company that was listed at NASDAQ called Siffy.com back then. And so I asked him, I said, look, this is my idea and I want to build this out. Would you come along, invest a small money and partner with me? I wanted him to invest because uh, that's the only way he would be fully involved with that. But I realized later that he would be involved even if he didn't invest. That's the kind of person he was. So we partnered together. His name was Gopal. His name is Gopal rather. And we partnered together and we sort of thought through and it took about a year and a half. And my first colleague, Abneesh, joined us and uh, we sort of built this business out for a year and a half. It, it was a bit frustrating because that's how long it took. And today, if you think about it in Web 2.0, all you got to do is one Shopify website in 48 hours, you're live. So we didn't have that. And it took us almost a year and a half to get the platform ready to start doing our first transaction. Now, I remember Blue Nile, at first, they said there was some hostility from the traditional trade that people were upset at them at trade shows and people would only meet with them in private. Did you have the same issue in India? Yes, we did. Uh, we were changing the margin structure of the business and, and we're making the business a lot more open and transparent. Not just then, even today, there is some amount of that. But now I think once you become successful, that changes. But early days, most certainly, there was a lot of hostility. There was hostility aimed at us through our vendors as well also. Blue Nile had something which was, uh, which is amazing for them that early days they had a lot of success. And so they could fight it off by saying that, look, we're successful. And so the vendors would obviously want to do a lot more business with them. For us, success came slowly. And so we had to manage these relationships well. In terms of a sort of customers' willingness to purchase high value online, I guess, how did that evolve? How did you coax the you know initial customers to spend? And what is considered, is there sort of an understood bracket for what is high value in India? Like what would be in a lot of money for somebody to buy something online? Yes. Um, you know, I was uh, very young. I was in my 20s at that point. And I still remember there was a quote of Scott Fitzgerald that I read somewhere in between this journey. And it resonated so well for me. It said something like, in your 20s, you look at every opportunity as a rolling stone from the top of a mountain and in your 40s you sit in a cave and want to protect everything that you have <laughs> Wow! and so I was sitting there building this website honestly not thinking enough about what it takes for the customer to come and buy transact with us and so I hear I open the website and I'm like, why is nobody buying? And uh, then I realized, and somebody wise, I think Gopal told me or somebody else told me, is like, just because you built a website doesn't mean it's your birthright that someone's going to come and shop. So go out there, try and understand what it takes to make this thing happen. And that's where really the journey of the consumer started. And at the same time, of course, we had to create a cash flow fight and that we did separately. But um, the consumer was certainly not ready. And early days, we realized that we are at least a couple of years ahead of what needs to get done. But still, we have to be at it and we have to make sure they understand the value proposition that we are putting out for them to understand. Men were our early target. 
they naturally gravitated towards us because jewelry stores were just not designed for men in India. Most women shop in jewelry stores in India. And I guess largely true in America, except for the engagement ring, I still see a lot of men over there. But in India, that doesn't happen either. So this became an easy place for men to learn about diamonds, shop and, you know, spend the money. And we just had to sort of find a way to make it happen. The tactile need, which America possibly finds it hard to do, but we could solve it over here, was that we started building something called Try at Home. And we would allow people to see this, the short list of diamonds, two, three or four, what they want to see and touch and feel them and sort of solve that. So two things, one, it would solve for trust in the channel. And second, it would solve for trust in us as well also. So we did have to do that to sort of overcome the restrictions which pure online brings in, especially at such an early time. Meaning you literally allowed people to sort of order up three or four diamonds and have them sent to their home and then yes. trust they would return them. And I think this is probably a difference between Indian culture and American culture. I think in America, people wouldn't necessarily want people in there. They'd be a little skittish, but in India, it's it's perhaps culturally okay or... It was a single biggest question drop that everybody asked us. Our investors asked us this. Everybody asked us this. And my answer to all of them was only one thing. Let's just try it. We can shut it down if it doesn't work. Hmm. And it worked. Yeah, it worked. But if we made that decision sitting in the meeting room, I think we would have just never been where we are. And same thing goes for every other experiment we do. I think if you have an opportunity to make a trial with an experiment, I think it just works for us to try it. And then if it works, it works. If it fails, it fails. And if it fails for the right reasons, even better. If it fails for the wrong reason, then get back and try again. Because it took us three attempts to do try at home and then get it right. The first two attempts, it failed also. But we knew that it failed for the wrong reasons. I wonder, I am struggling to think of how that might work here in the States where security perhaps is a bigger issue. And as Rob mentioned, this kind of, especially post-COVID, this willingness to welcome people into a home perhaps has changed. Did you see that try at home option? How was it impacted by the pandemic? In the start of the pandemic, there was an impact on it. People didn't want to come and we were very careful about asking that. We had people wearing double mask, a visor as well, and going across to them. The image was made available to them of who's coming and also when the vaccinations came by and saying they're doubly vaccinated and all of that we could put across, we were doing that. But there were those who were willing to do it and those who were not willing to do it would obviously not book an appointment itself. So based on your uh, experience here, your one year here, do you think it could work in the United States? So I do make it a point to spend summer every year. My wife's from America. She's from New York. And so I do get a lot of exposure there. I do think that there could be ways to make it work in America from the security point of view. But I don't think there are ways to make it work in America from a cost point of view. You mean labor, yeah. just having the labor yeah. on the... Especially now, you know, now I think it's just out of the window. Speaking of America, you were just at the JCK show, I believe. I was. I was. I happened to be in this jewelry business, I think, for my love for the show. That's where I really fell in love with the jewelry business. Wow. When was your first Vegas? Do you remember which JCK? What year? Oh, of course I remember. 1998 JCK. Oh, goodness. Almost back to the very beginning, which was 92. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I was looking at those badges this time at the show, which said, celebrate your anniversary. It was so cool to have that there. Yeah, it's 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 a long-running show, I guess, as shows. I don't know. There must be other trade shows that beat it, but 30 years is quite a stretch. What was your take on this year's event? Did you buy a lot? Were you there just to meet with people? What was your kind of goal there? Yes, this show for me particularly was about meeting a lot of people. The connections already exist with a lot of them to buy from them, and that goes on. It had been a few years that I had not made it up there. And you get to meet everybody at one shot. And I think uh, a great visibility of what is happening in America as well. And also, America is two steps ahead in lab grown as compared to everybody else and you know obviously from the position we're in it's very important to understand what's going on in that 
I think uh, if you were to think about both the lab-grown side of it as well as the technology side of the business, this is the first show right now which is delivered at that scale. No other show have I seen that scale so far at. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So in 2016, you were purchased by Tanishq. Yes, they bought majority in the company. And then I think they, they upped it a little while later. First of all, our listeners may not be familiar with Tanish. You want to kind of explain how big they are and what kind of role they play in the Indian market? Yes, sure. They are the number one brand from the House of Tatas. The House of Tatas is the most trusted name in the country where 65% of all profits from the entire conglomerate goes for charity. The businesses they own are Tanishq. Some of the businesses in America that you might know that they own are TCS or Jaguar, Land Rover, the car companies, Taj Hotels. There's the Pierre in New York and a few other hotels around as well that they own. They exist in, I think, about 100 businesses across the country. So Tanishq by itself, the jewelry business is about 25 years old now. It is the largest jewelry company in India uh, with a market capitalization of somewhere close to about $25 billion. That's about one and a half times the size of Tiffany. And what has that been like to be partially owned by them? Uh, Do they play a big role in corporate decision making? Do they let you kind of manage as you were? Uh, No, we manage as we were pretty much. Uh, They've been great partners. The two things that we sort of gained by partnering with them, one is trust, because Tata is the most trusted name and one of the most trusted names around the world for those who are exposed to them. And the second is the balance sheet. And we obviously could lever up and be able to build a much faster scale on that. How much ever money we would raise through the VC route, I don't think achieving trust happens in a short duration. That's one part. And secondly, the same money that you raise from VCs, one could do that through the Tatas. And so it solves dual purposes as opposed to doing one purpose. So it worked well for us. You know, you mentioned a a while back that, you know, you believe in experiments like this try at home and whether or not it succeeds at first is it certainly won't stop you from trying. I wonder what experiments you've done, especially under the Tanishq umbrella over the last five, six years that have been notable, whether or not they've been successful. What what else have you tried that you feel excited about? Yeah, um, I'll tell you the experiments we've tried. They might have some or some aspects of it might have worked or helped us because of Tanishq, some maybe not. It might just happen because the team wanted to do something. One of the early things that we were doing was build, we built a virtual try-on and uh, it was very different from augmented reality and I, that worked contrary to popular belief that actually didn't work at all for us. And we thought that virtual try-on will be the biggest thing. But if you were to put data on it and say that for every single consumer who bought a piece of jewelry from Caritlane and saw that those who did the virtual try-on and who did not do the virtual try-on, the virtual try-on did not add a value back. And the reason for that is that it doesn't still give you 100% surety of what it looks like. And when that doesn't happen, it actually takes away from decision-making. When you don't know something, you might still make a decision. But knowing that it doesn't look exactly the same stops you from making decisions. So that's one big thing that we learned across. And uh, we sort of pulled away from it. The second thing that I think worked very well for us is building our Omni network. Today, wherever you log in in Caritlane from, let's say you log in from Bombay, And if you were to browse from Bombay, the first inventory that you end up seeing is the inventory which is in the city of Bombay. Everything that can come to you in 24 hours. 
And that's the first inventory that you see. After that, you will see long tail, which is inventory that might come to you in 48 hours and then three days and five days and seven days. Contrary to our first experiments, because we started doing surveys with consumers, and that's really when we realized that surveys with consumers don't always play out. So we asked them two questions saying that, would you prefer to get jewelry in 24 hours at full price? Or would you prefer to get it in five days with a 10% discount? And unanimous answer was five days with 10% discount. But you know, when the moment of truth arrives and the customer has to make a decision, at that point, it's about buying today. And he mm -hmm. wants it right away. Nobody's willing to wait five days at that point, And we would lose our business to somebody else. But everybody unanimously in the survey told us that, no, we'd rather have the discount and get jewelry in five days. Everybody's always late to buy gifts. Mm. And that insight just didn't play out when you do surveys, et cetera, also. Do you guys have bots and things like that? Do you employ them? Do they work? Those kind of chat bots that pop up on virtually every website I know of. Yes. So we use them only, I think it's post 11 p.m. at night that the bot comes on right now because the number of people available for staffing is less at that point. And so if you want to know just order status or things like that, they'll give you an answer. The minute it recognizes it cannot give you an answer, it transfers it to a human, but it lets you know it's I'm a bot. Think of me as a child and ask me questions like that. I'm not trained enough to solve your jewelry needs. I'm just trained to solve your transaction needs. So I'm interested in all the stores you have. You have 150 stores, you said. Why did you decide you also needed a brick and mortar component? And were you, when Tanish approached you, were you worried that you were competing with Tanish? So let me answer the second question first. No, we were not competing with Tanishka because uh, by ASP, for example, average selling price for them is closer to $1,800. And average selling price for us is a couple of hundred dollars, $300. So very, very different, except for obviously the engagement ring business for us, which is at about $1,500. So competing, no. And we were running a business very different from the way they run it. And that's why their interest in us as well also. And their interest was always to keep the team and let the team run the business and they come on as a investment partner into the company and so that's how it's been built across as well also from the time they've come in which is about 2016 to now just to give you a sense the business has grown about 12 times that's the sort of jump we've had the stores 2008 9 8 december so like 2009 is when we really got live with character 2011 is when we opened the first store Rob. we were clear that there's a certain amount of tactile need which is there in this business and that needs to get solved. So we started with a couple of disaster stores. We just didn't get it right, the format, et cetera. But we didn't give up like our experiment strategy is. We sort of realized that it was our mistake and not that the consumer doesn't want to see it. So we fixed the stores. And by 2013, we had a working model of what kind of stores are needed. And since then, it's just been no looking back. The, uh, I would say, American e-commerce companies and specifically jewelry e-commerce companies tend to go with these very upscale models for their brick and mortar stores that are kind of in this very clean look, this techie look that is somewhat reminiscent of the Apple stores. Is that something your stores try to emulate? We did in the first few disasters, and we learned very early that when the consumer comes to the store, they want to see jewelry. They don't want to see tech anymore. They've done the tech work at their home. They walk in with their cell phone telling us, this is the piece I want to see. And what you really want to put out there is the best representation of your best sellers in the catalog. And if you can get that out there, people want to transact there. So using technology to almost work like magic, where it's invisible in the store, but makes everything significantly faster. And Apple does that beautifully, I think. I think they trans the transaction time in an Apple store is amazingly low. Learning those things from Apple and making that happen, I think, is more important. 
but the core of the store must be a jewelry business. It should not become a tech store. You know, a lot of uh, U.S. tech businesses are going into these brick and mortar stores because of problems with customer acquisition costs. They feel that they're spending too much money on Facebook ads and Google ads. Is that a problem in India? And is that one of the reasons you decided to go into stores? Okay, so you go digital because you want to have mind share. So if you think of the entire journey as a funnel, the top of the funnel will always become digital. Let's just I mean, that's the where it has to be. If they can discover my jewelry before they have to walk into a store and do that, I have already won the game. And that's what's happening in India right now. And that's what will happen in US as well. But the transaction need of the customer, especially the kind of money that gets spent in jewelry and the kind of product jewelry is, there is a need for tactile. And so now you're seeing everybody open stores. But I think this is something that we read very early and uh, we just started building it out like that. In terms of cost of transaction, just because of sheer scale and width that we've built and the way we open stores of how we open because we go chasing where our consumers are our cost of transaction is only in the range of five six percent very different from the u.s ones which don't open stores or have not opened sufficient stores and if you look at a pure online business all said and done is still only that much scale if you take all amazon categories and say what is the size of amazon business it's still single digits if you take any jewelry business and say what's the scale and size of that business online business compared to the total business is still low single digits so i don't think that's materially going to change with omni you own the consumer's mind digitally at the same time you're able to transact with him the way he wants to transact and that's our view whether he wants to transact on video whether he wants to transact in the store whether he wants to do a try at home or wants to buy online we'll make everything available i mean any thoughts could you ever see yourself coming to the united states so we just started shipping to America and we're doing about a billion dollars a month now almost. We're going after global Indians right now over there. Indians living in America, that's how we call them as global Indians as such. I do feel that there's a great opportunity for a business like ours to open in America or do something, but we don't have the brand for Americans with character. So if you have to do it, we have to build something from scratch or look for something which already exists and sort of uh, partner with them or do something like that. The ambition is definitely there, but the timing currently doesn't seem right. And anything that you think the U.S. retailers or e-tailers could learn from your experience? I think there are two things which I call the Caritlin principles for me. One is agility, and the second is just keep doing more experiments. I think the more we'll be willing to try on, the more we'll be surprised. And the less decisions we make in our heads or with our, you know, because if you think about people who work in the jewelry business, we're all like echo chambers to each other. And we should get out of that echo chamber and do more experiments. Thank you so much, Matun, for your time and these wonderful insights and for staying up late with us, um, even if culturally you were bound to stay up late anyway. We really appreciate <laughs> you taking a few minutes out of your evening with us. Thank, thank you, Vic. Thank you, Rob. And we, we look forward to seeing you in the United States next time you're here. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.